When did people start to believe in life after death? Some people say that in the Old Testament, people didn't really believe in it like we do. Is that true? And why does it matter? Does it matter to you and me? Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran, and welcome to Bible 805. We're going to answer these questions and more in today's podcast entitled, Life After Death, God's Gift or Man's Wishful Thinking. Let's face it, life isn't easy, and contrary to what some people say, becoming a Christian does not mean that life will be easy, prosperous, and free from troubles. Quite the contrary. We may have more testing, more trials, and more challenges than we can imagine. And because of that, the Apostle Paul said, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But then he went on to share that because of Christ's death and resurrection, this life is not all there is, and that those who have trusted Christ for salvation are assured of an eternity with him. But then the question comes up, did people always believe that? Now, we've been studying the Bible in our podcast series. This is kind of a special one that I think the topic itself deserves just concentrated study. But what prompted it is coming across in the Old Testament, as we've just even been starting out, where it talks about Abraham being gathered to his people. And then someone brought up the topic of what we're going to be talking about today. And what some people say is that people back in those Old Testament times didn't really believe in life after death. Some people say that they only had a vague view of some kind of shadowy existence in Sheol, some vague netherworld, and that the idea of life after death was really man's invention, his sort of wishful thinking, starting out with vague ideas and then developing through the Old Testament. Now, that was very disturbing to me. As I shared at the start of this podcast, in my personal pilgrimage for an assurance of my belief in Jesus as Savior and the truth of the Bible, I studied history because I thought if something is true, it should be true for all time. Truth should not change as we go out through, go through history. And what I learned about the Bible and the faith after getting a graduate degree, going to additional graduate school, and many, many years of study verified that. If you didn't listen to the podcast series, Truth and History, Why We Can Trust the Bible, that is available at www.bible805.com. Please go back and listen to that because that goes into how we can trust history for truth and then following that how we can trust the Bible. So when I heard the claim that people in the Old Testament didn't really believe in life after death, that upset me. Because I knew and I believe that if God is true and trustworthy, and I believe he is, then he doesn't change. I mean, the Bible again and again says, I, the Lord, do not change. And though much of Revelation is progressive, in that we understand things more and more as we go through biblical history, core beliefs don't change. For example, in the Old Testament, we have prophecies about the Messiah. In the New Testament, the Messiah is revealed to be Jesus of Nazareth. That didn't change, it just we learned more and more about it. But for something also as important as bodily resurrection, as life after death, it kind of seemed to me that it ought to be clearly taught from the first to the last. Now, 
the way we're going to approach this study is in just a couple of minutes, I'm going to tell you my conclusion after all my study. I don't believe in making you wait until the end. I'll tell you my conclusion. Then I will go back and tell you where people get the ideas that this is not something that people always believed in. I do, and I'll just give away sort of spoiler alert here, I do think those are false views, and I will then show you why and show you what the Bible and very respected Bible commentators have to say about the topic. So first of all, my conclusion. My conclusion is that from the earliest pages of Genesis, through the Old Testament, to the closing of the book of Revelation, the Bible clearly and consistently and unequivocally teaches the reality of bodily resurrection. So, since I believe that and many other scholars do, where in the world did people get the ideas that it doesn't teach that? Well, let's look at some of those things now. Before we start on some specific sources for that, it reminded me a lot as I as I started studying this of the time when Jesus was on earth and he was arguing with the Sadducees. They did not believe in the resurrection. And in the middle of this exchange, he challenged them by saying, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. And then he went on to refer to the specific thing that they were talking about. He said, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but they will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus, in that passage, really summarized what he was arguing about the Sadducees with. First of all, that they were in error because they hadn't read their own scriptures that very clearly told them about the resurrection. And just like in Jesus' day, there are many people who do not believe it, who do not believe that the Old Testament teaches that. But I would propose that there are three reasons why they probably don't and why why they should maybe change what they're thinking. First of all, they people believe that the Old Testament doesn't teach these things because of what I really think is a very unexamined acceptance of a particularly faulty scholarly view. Now, you will hear it quoted again and again. Well, scholars believe, scholars believe. Well, what scholars are you talking about? That's always important to identify, and I will go into detail on a little bit more of that in a minute. Also, too, a lot of these beliefs that some of these scholars have are based on what are known as non-canonical texts. When we refer to when we refer, refer to texts as canonical, and again, please go back and listen to that podcast on the definition of canonicity if you haven't as yet. I think it will clarify some things for you. But if something is not canonical, that means it has not been accepted in the church as the Word of God. Now there are a lot of historically interesting and fanciful 
and useful things to study fanciful stories and maybe some of the different things that people believed at the time, but they are not what we consider the Word of God, and we feel that they should not be evaluated and accepted in the same ways. The second reason that I think people come to these conclusions, and this one, write what Jesus said, you're in error because you don't know the Scriptures. I believe that the Old Testament, and I will be sharing this with you in detail, has very many declarative and definitive statements about resurrection from the dead from the earliest days. But a lot of people simply don't read the Bible. They read about the Bible. They read what people say about the Bible, but they don't just read it. Also, many who believe this do not read the views of very well-respected biblical scholars who support the view that people in the Old Testament did believe in the resurrection. So let's look at a, a few statements of what I consider the false viewpoint. What one book said on this, and, and I'm quoting here, and um, on your notes there, there will be the documentation of this. It said, most of the scholarly world agrees. There is no concept of immortality of life after death in the Old Testament. With these words, George Mendenhall summarizes the consensus of critical academics regarding the afterlife in the Hebrew Bible. Even many Jewish thinkers deny an afterlife. Now, I just have to pause right there. That is not a consensus of all critical academics. It's a chosen few that are writing for this particular book that he's editing, and they are all scholars that uh, promote a view of world religions, what we would consider many secular ones, ones that are not considered conservative biblical scholars. So although it's the view of these scholars, and I appreciate and respect them, it is not the view of all scholarship. He quotes one Jewish scholar who says, death has no significance, only life matters. In the entire Torah, and I'm going to show you where he's he's wrong. I just I just had to put that in there. Um, but anyway, going on with what he says, there is not the slightest suggestion that anything happens after death. All ideas and theories articulated on this subject of a world to come and the resurrection of the dead have no relationship to religious faith. That is sheer folklore. After you die, you simply do not exist. And then he goes on to say that the critics of the Bible argue that the concept of the afterlife was an evolutionary development that God didn't slowly reveal the subject of heaven, instead that the Jewish people slowly invented it. Now, I totally disagree with absolutely everything in those statements, but this is a good summary of the kind of, I believe, totally incorrect information that is out there. Again, when he talks about most of the scholarly world, that is simply not true. Many secular scholars believe that. Many conservative biblical scholars absolutely do not. The Jewish view, and it's it's really kind of sad that this one particular person was quoted. As you will see, the Old Testament has far more than not the slightest suggestion. It very clearly, in the heroes of the Jewish faith, state a firm belief in the afterlife. And again, the Jewish people did not invent the idea. God revealed it, but he did not do it slowly. Again, you will see the documentation for this in a little bit. Now, 
where again where did this idea come from I'm wanting to show you where some of the things come from another professor of uh, biblical history in a secular university puts it this way she says prior to the second temple period both Jewish and Greek thought were dominated by the idea that people went to the same space after death and lived a shadowy existence. In the Hebrew Bible, this place is called Sheol, and in Greek texts like the Odyssey, it is called Hades. By the Second Temple period, apocalyptic literature had confined separate spaces, had, excuse me, had configured separate spaces for persons both before and after the final judgment based on their earthly behavior. She goes on to quote First Enoch that describes four containers that souls will inhabit as they await judgment. And then in the fourth book of Ezra, where people are confronted with two ways, one is a narrow way, one is a difficult way. Now, of course, she states these things so forcefully, but you have to stop, pause, and look at what are her sources. She refers to Jewish and Greek thought in the same sentence as if they were the same thing, and they're absolutely not. The true Jewish thought in the Old Testament, which is an original source for it, is very, very different than the Odyssey. You can't group them together and say that the Old Testament teaches the same things as the Greek Odyssey. That's just simply not true. And in the apocalyptic literature that she quotes from Enoch and um, as and well, it's actually for for the fourth book or second book of Ezra, depending upon how you look at it. These are not books in the canon of Scripture. Now, Ezra is in the Apocrypha, but it is not considered sacred Scripture at all. The book of Enoch is not even; they don't even consider it reliable enough to be part of the Apocrypha. It is simply a collection of fanciful stories. So these are not resources, even. Even if you don't believe in the God of the Bible, that you should, as any sort of even amateur scholar, take as being reflective of what Jewish people actually thought about the afterlife. If you just look at the Old Testament as a record written from the earliest days of their history, I think you will see something very different. Now, in some ways, I was thinking, you know, kind of, what is this like? It's just like for someone who, for example, hasn't read the Harry Potter books. If you haven't read the Harry Potter books, but you've just heard about them, and sadly, some people in the church have this idea, they will just say, and this was a quote from a website from some actually some critical Christian sources. But anyway, they said, Harry Potter is satanic witchcraft. And the person quoting it said, yes, I know some people think that. And the author went on to say they are people who disapprove of fantasy in general. Now, in a very similar way to what I talked about, how some scholars look at the Old Testament, I don't think it's all that different that many of them, they do not believe in the supernatural. They take that as a bias ahead of time. They don't believe that the Old Testament was, was written when many scholars say that it was. They don't really believe anything in it. And they also haven't ever read it. So they come up with these conclusions that are not consistent with the book. And to me, what they're saying has really about the same value as saying, Harry Potter is about satanic witchcraft. It isn't. And you want to read the book to see what it's about. You may not, you still may not like the book, but at least don't say that it's something that it isn't. Now we've talked about what isn't true in these viewpoints. Now let's look 
at the Bible and see what it actually says. Now, what I'm going to start out with quoting some passages from the book Hard Sayings of the Bible. This is a combined effort by Walter Kaiser Jr., Peter H. Davies, F. F. Bruce, and Manfred T. Branch. And these are excellent, highly respected biblical scholars. This is a fantastic book. I can't recommend enough that you take a look at it. What I'm going to do is I'm going to quote some of, of some of these initial passages out of the book, and then I'm just going to quote verses and make a few comments on them. And I think as we go through all of them, you will get a true sense of what the Bible actually teaches about it. Now, first of all, I'm going to start with some of the preliminary comments that these gentlemen make about the view of life after death and the resurrection in the Bible. In this passage, Walter Kaiser is referring to two passages that I will read you later in Daniel and Isaiah that both affirm the resurrection, but I think his preliminary comments are very important here. He says, and I quote, Nevertheless, it is amazing to see how many learned men and women will deny even these two texts and argue that the Old Testament teaches virtually nothing about resurrection or life after death. The truth of the matter is that ancient peoples were more attuned to the subject of life after death than moderns suspect. The peoples of the ancient Near East wrote at length about what life was like after one left this earth. One need only consult such representative pieces as the Gilgamesh epic, the descent of Ishtar into the netherworld, the Book of the Dead, and the Pyramid texts. Indeed, the whole economy of Egypt was geared to the cult of the dead for all who wished to wished apart in the next life had to be buried around the Pyramid of the Pharaoh. What these Egyptians could expect in that afterlife was depicted in the scenes on the walls of their mortuaries, eating, drinking, singing, and all the joys of this life. Each joy, of course, would be magnified and still enjoyed through a body. By the time Abraham arrived in Egypt, such concepts had been emblazoned on their walls in hieroglyphics, murals, and models made of clay to make sure no one missed the point. Life after death was not a modern doctrine developed by an educated society that began to think more abstractly about itself in its times. Instead, it was an ancient hunger and existed in the hearts of humanity long before the patriarchs, prophets, and kings of the Old Testament began to function. Now his point here is not to say that the Egyptian or some of these other groups view was correct, but many scholars will say that people in those times didn't even think about the afterlife, that all of them had this very vague and shadowy existence. And he's just saying that in the whole view of the world at that time, that was simply not true, that people had a very concrete and tangible view of the afterlife. So now let's look at some of, let's just narrow down to the Old Testament history, and let's look at some specific passages. Again, I'm going to read you some commentary from the Hard Sayings book. I have some of my own comments, but the most important thing that I would encourage you to do is to look at 
what does the Bible actually say? Now let's start out with the story of Enoch and this is uh, this first section I'm going to read you another passage from Hard Sayings where it says, the earliest biblical mention of the possibility of immortals inhabiting the immortal reigns of deity can be found in Genesis 5.24. We are told that a man named Enoch lived 365 years all the while walking with God. But suddenly he was no more because God took him away. After 365 years of intimacy with the Almighty, suddenly the Lord took Enoch. Now what does it mean that he took him? The Hebrew root for the verb to take is used over a thousand times in the Old Testament. However, in two contexts, this passage and the account of Elijah's assumption into heaven, it refers to a snatching of the person's body up to heaven. Psalm 73 has a very similar thought where it says, You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me to glory. Accordingly, it can be argued on very strong linguistic and conceptual grounds that the taking of a person from this earth implies that all mortals are capable of inhabiting immortal realms. For the believer in Yahweh in the Old Testament times, death did not end at all. There was life after death, and that life was to be in the presence of the living God. He goes on to say, and this is kind of interesting, such a view of an immediate access to the presence of God would also close down all speculation on any kind of intermediate state, receptacle, or location as unscriptural. To say that the Old Testament believers stayed in a separate compartment in Sheol or in a kind of purgatory runs directly counter to the fact that God snatched Enoch and Elijah away to himself. And, by implication, that is what he does with all other godly believers who trust in him. In this passage from Hard Saints, he's referring to another statement that he feels that many times people have misunderstood in relation to the Old Testament view of the afterlife, and that was the idea that he was gathered to his people. Now, in Genesis 25, it says, Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. He goes on to say that in the Old Testament, those who have died are regarded as still existing. The event of being gathered to his people is always distinguished from the act of burial, which is described separately, and he has a whole bunch of verses that affirm this. In many cases, only one ancestor was even in the tomb, or none at all, and so being gathered to one's people could not be mean, as some people have said, being laid in the family sepulchre. He goes on to say, the readers of the text should not infer something special from the use of Sheol in some of these texts. In every one of the 65 instances of Sheol being used in the Old Testament, it refers simply to the grave, not to some shadowy region of the netherworld. And then, I think this is a very, uh, very important statement where he says, the writer of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament supports the notion that the patriarchs expected an afterlife. And in the commentary in Hebrews 11, it says, all these people, and he's referring to the people previously listed from Abel to Abraham, were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. 
People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they left, they would have opportunity to return. Instead, they're looking for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This is clear testimony that through faith, these early participants in the promises of God were fully expecting to enjoy life after death. While the full revelation of the life hereafter and the resurrection of the body awaited a later complete unveiling in the Old and New Testaments, the common assertion that the Old Testament saint knew nothing about such a possibility is an error caused by preconceptions. In Genesis 17:8, Abraham was given a promise by God, the whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. The rabbis reasoned that since Abraham never actually enjoyed fulfillment of this promise, he would be raised to the raised from the dead to possess the land. And I wanted to especially read that last little line because contrary to what the previous Jewish scholars said, not all Jewish scholars believe the same thing. And and always take that with a grain of salt when somebody says, oh, everyone believes this. No, they don't. On either side, there'll be people that agree or don't agree, but there's almost nothing in the scholarly world about anything about the Bible that everyone believes in. Now, just one little side note. Walter Kaiser from the Hard Sayings of the Bible puts in that I thought was kind of interesting. He said, Other evidences of the belief of a real life after death are afforded by the stern warnings from Mosaic times about any dabbling in necromancy, the cult of contacting the dead. What harm would there be in fooling around with something that had no reality? Already, though, however, in the middle of the second millennium BC, the Israelites knew the afterlife was real and thus they were warned not to be involved with any contacting of individuals who had passed beyond this world. If you've listened to my podcast on the book of Job, you've already heard this. But if you haven't, I think there are two absolutely wonderful passages in the book of Job that affirm the afterlife. Although Job struggles with the idea off and on, he makes two very important declarative statements. And the first one is where he says, if someone dies, will they live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait for my renewal to come. You will call and I will answer you. You will long for the creature your hands have made. And I think it's really kind of neat. When I was studying this passage, the word there, renewal, is the Hebrew word chalifa. And what it means in the Hebrew is a change of garments. And I couldn't help but think about how Paul in the New Testament talks about how we will put off the mortal for the immortal. The Apostle Paul talking in many ways about a change of garments and Job talking about the afterlife in the same way. And then the most powerful statement, you've all heard this before, whether you knew it came from the book of Job or not, but in the wonderful words of the Messiah, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth and after my skin has been destroyed yet in my flesh 
I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. And the thing that was so exciting to me when I started studying it is in the Hebrew where he says, after my skin has been destroyed, obviously his earthly life, then he says, yet in my flesh I will see God. So he's talking very distinctly about life before death, life after the death, in my skin, but in my flesh. What is really exciting is those two phrases are the exact same Hebrew word, basar. After my basar has been destroyed, yet in my basar, I will see God. I think that is probably one of the most powerful statements. And very early on, as many scholars believe that the book of Job is the earliest book in the Old Testament that affirm the bodily resurrection. Why isn't that talked about more? Well, I don't know. Um, One of the reasons why you're listening to this podcast, and I'm encouraging you to read through the whole Bible, so many people do not read the entire Bible. And in the case of the book of Job, and please go back and you can you can listen to the study on that they don't really know when certain books were written if you believe that what many liberal scholars do that the book of job was written really late and it's just this fanciful story then you won't take seriously anything that he says but if you believe as many biblical scholars do and as I do and I I show you why in the other podcast that Job was a real person who lived in a real time on this earth these things happened to him and he wrote down his experiences of them and God has them put in our scriptures as truth from him, then that makes all the difference some of the things that he says. But let's not stay there. Let's move right along in the Old Testament. Let's look at Saul and David. And Saul, this is kind of a sad odd, weird story, but again, it does affirm life after death. Just before his death in 1 Samuel uh, 28, he calls up, he has the witch of Endor call up the ghost of, or the spirit of Samuel. We don't really know exactly what happened, but they were surprised because Samuel actually shows up, and he tells Saul that he and his sons are going to die the next day. The interesting thing, though, that he says is, you will be with me. Samuel was an entity that obviously survived death, and he's telling Saul that you and your sons are going to die, but you will be with me. Now, again, just a side note on this. This is important. Listen. Saul, the next day, committed suicide. Samuel knew that, knew that was going to happen. But he still said, you will be with me. And many people, I'm not the only one that says this, many uh, commentators point out that this passage should be a great comfort to those who have lost a loved one who committed suicide. Because God does not abandon someone who leaves this life in a moment of perhaps sheer terror or disappointment or utter sadness or all of the many, many reasons why someone might commit suicide. If that person was a believer in Jesus, they can expect to be welcomed by his loving arms just the same way, I think, in many ways that the father welcomed the prodigal son. 
Another passage involving David is in 2 Samuel 12, 21, when David's child died that um, he had with Bathsheba. Now they went on to have other sons. Solomon was one of them. But this early on child died. And his attendants said to him, Why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. And David answered them, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back to me? And the implication is no. And then David goes on to say, I will go to him but he will not return to me. And again, this passage, of course, is of great comfort to those whose children die at birth or die shortly after birth. David said, you know, someday I'm going to see my child. I can't see him now. He can't come back to me now, but I will go to him. And then, again, many of these were written by David, but many of the Psalms by other people. There are so many passages in the book of Psalms that refer very specifically to life after death. I'm just going to share a few of them. In Psalm 49:15, it says, But God will redeem me from the realm of the dead. He will surely take me to himself. And then in Psalm 73, which is just a great psalm, it's, it's something that's good to read when it seems like everybody else is getting ahead and then you're trying to stick to your principles and do what God wants you to and things aren't going well for you and the psalmist is just saying, I don't understand this. And then he finally realizes, well, this life isn't all there is. And he finally ends up by saying, yet I'm always with you. He saying that he's with God. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In Psalm 15:5, it echoes very similar thoughts where it says, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. I will keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You've made me to know the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And of course, the 23rd Psalm that starts out talking about how the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And it goes on to say that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And of course, the Psalm ends by saying, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Isaiah has two passages that specifically affirm life after death. And remember that he wrote somewhere between 739 and 681 BC. And by the way, even for those who say that the book of Isaiah was written in two parts, which it wasn't, but even if you say that, that one was written quite a bit later, this actually comes from the early part of it. So in Isaiah 25, 7 and 8, it says, On this mountain, 
mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. And then in twenty six nineteen it says, But your dead will live. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. I don't know how much more obvious you could be. It seems pretty clear that Isaiah believed in bodily resurrection. And then, of course, the passage in Daniel that is so wonderful where it says in Daniel 12, two, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. And here, scholars believe this means their bodies, their spirits are already with God, but at the final resurrection, everyone will receive an eternal body, some again for destruction, some for everlasting life. But the passage goes on to say, those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And many times in my ministry where I talk to church communicators, I also have a ministry where I train and encourage church communicators, I will often quote this verse to them where I will remind them that in the very hard work that they do, that they are leading many to righteousness. And the Bible says those that do that will be like the stars forever and ever. And this is the true path to stardom may not be in an earthly way. You may never get a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, but in God's future, you will shine like the stars forever and ever. We've gone through numerous passages from the beginning to pretty much the end of the Old Testament, and now I'd just like to share some final thoughts. These are totally subjective. This is no scholarly anything. But I think beyond the obvious message of all of these verses, and if you read them, I think it just makes sense that's that's what people believed, that there was an afterlife, there was a bodily resurrection, there is a bodily resurrection, that just looking at the whole overview of how God treats us, bodily resurrection simply makes sense. God created people. And when he created them in a perfect world, in paradise, he walked with them. Unfortunately, sin broke that very close relationship, but it didn't break God's love for his creation. Now, remember that God's love is not a conditional love. It's described as an everlasting love, Jeremiah 31.3, and many other passages in the Old Testament and New Testament talk about that. You will see, as we study the Old Testament in the series that we're going through, that love demonstrated again and again and again. One little side comment, it just upsets me greatly when people talk about the God of the Old Testament as an angry God, and how the God of the New Testament is a loving God. No, God is a God of love from beginning to end. And please be reading through the Old Testament and listening to the podcast, and you'll see God's love in that, probably in a way that you never have before if if you haven't done that. Now, at the end of humanity's story, it's very similar to the beginning of it, where God walked with people, where it says that he's going to create or recreate a new heaven and a new earth. 
And it says in Revelation, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and he himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. What I see here so clearly is once again God is walking among and with his people. The story hasn't changed from the time of Enoch and David and Daniel to many others in the New Testament to the thief on the cross who Jesus said today he would be with him in paradise. For some reason, and I do not understand this, our Lord loves us and he loves us in a tangible way where we will have resurrected physical bodies to be with him forever. I think in many ways John 3.16 really sums this up where it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Eternal, real, physical, and bodily resurrected life was true for people in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and for all of us who trust Him today. Once again, I cannot understand it. I do not understand a God of love like that. But I'm thankful for it. And I'm honestly praying for any of you who might be listening to this. And maybe by chance you just for some reason stumbled upon this and you don't know that astounding, eternal, undeserved love of God. I'm praying that you'll open your heart to it, that you will learn what it means to walk with Him through the rest of your earthly life, through death and forever. That's all for now. Please check out the other podcasts, the notes, and materials that are on the website www.bible805.com. And until next time, I'm Yvonne Pran, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus, and I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen.